One of my favorite books is uh, Tom Sawyer. You ever read that book? Mark Twain. That was his pen name. He is Samuel Clemens. He was a riverboat captain um, uh, uh, on the Mississippi River and on other rivers growing up. And he became a writer. And he was a brilliant guy, sardonic, cynical, a little bit nasty. He loved to look inside of American culture, especially the American South in the last century, and he could see the things that were wrong with us, and he wrote about them. And he never came to faith, sadly. He walked, one of his closest friends was a, a great writer and, an, and, a, and a great follower of Jesus, and yet he never kind of came to the place where he could trust in Jesus. In fact, he was mostly cynical about this thing called church. And in, in the book Huckleberry Finn, which is just, again, one of my favorite books, he, he writes this story, which I just, I find just amazing. We're talking about heaven and hell and, more importantly, eternal life. We're going to spend most of our time talking about eternal life this morning. But he writes about Huckleberry Finn. And if you've read the book, you might have run across this. Huck Finn is this ne'er-do-well kid who never has to go to school because his mom went missing and his dad's the town drunk. And he's the envy of every other boy in the neighborhood because he doesn't have to do anything, ever. He gets to do whatever. When he wants to go fishing, he goes fishing. When he wants to smoke... He smokes. When he wants to cuss, he cusses. And the storyline goes like that. Everybody else wishes they were Huck Finn because he could do whatever he wanted whenever he wanted. Well, he and his buddy Tom Sawyer, they come across a whole bunch of cash in a cave. Robbers have stowed this stuff away and they they find it and that makes them fabulously wealthy and the money is put in trust for them and it attracts all sorts of attention. And there's this woman and it, it just... She's just the sort of person that you you just love how Twain puts her. She's the widow Douglas, and she's the holiest person in town. And she decides to take this little orphan under her wing and raise him as a Christian. Brilliant idea. And so she puts him in a new suit of clothes and gives him this whole new bedroom, and he has to sleep in a bed when he's used to sleeping in these sheds, and he has to go through all of these. He just complains and gripes and hates all of it. And then he's actually made to listen to the scriptures in the evening of his day. So they have to, she sits down, and in the words of Twain, she sat me down and made me, she, she sat me down to learn me Moses and the bulrushes. That's how he puts it. And Huck just can't handle this. And finally, the, the conflict between the, the widow Douglas and this character gets so bad that she says, do you want to go to hell? <laughs> and he says, well, do you think Huck, or Tom Sawyer, my friend, is going there? And the widow Douglas looks at him and she she knows Tom Sawyer and she knows what sort of kid he is and he's not a good kid. And she says, I think Tom Sawyer is going to hell. And they kind of laugh. And then Huck Finn says, well, then I want to go there too. We have this picture of heaven and hell. And if you've been in American Christianity for any length of time, these things are kind of pictured as apathetic opposite ends of the story, and that's reasonable and good. In fact, I'll just summarize what heaven and hell look like. One is with God, and one is without God, okay? And that means that everything that's good is on one side of the equation. We don't really know that much. For as much as Christians have talked about this and written books about it and preached sermons about it, we don't know that much about heaven, and we know even less about hell. And and this is the without God life. That's what's clear. And this is the with God life. Is that clear? And what's more clear is that God wants people to live over here. And not just because he wants everybody to follow him, but because he actually likes people. That's what the scriptures teach, in a nutshell. And we need to talk about eternal life the way Jesus talked about eternal life this morning. 
And we're going to walk through the New Testament and think, and we're going to hopefully climb below the, the, the layers that Mark Twain saw. And we're not going to think just, okay, hell is this place where bad people go and heaven is this place where good people go, or more right, correctly, hell is this place where people go who don't trust in Jesus for their salvation versus place. There's more to it than that. And yet that's true, right? What you do with Jesus Christ is the decision maker about these two ultimate eternal destinies. And yet... It's a little more complicated because what God's actually trying to change is not just where you end up. You know, when I was a kid, I remember stories in Sunday school that made me think that I was going to sit and float around in a cloud and play a harp. Have you ever heard a harp? Anybody ever listened to a bit of harp music? Anybody really like the harp? Okay, there's a few of you. I don't. I don't want to play the harp. I don't want to spend eternity playing the harp. An electric guitar sounds better to me. That's just me. And I I really like pianos. I actually used to play the piano. Once I met Michael, I stopped because I found out there's a lot better people than me that play in the piano. But, you know, there's all of these instruments in the world. And uh, harps, no. So forgive me. You like them. That's great. And you can go to heaven and play a harp. But I, I wanted more out of my existence than just floating around on a cloud. In fact... I really wondered about a faith that would only change the future and not change the now. And I had deep questions in my little soul in third, fourth, and fifth grade. And every time I went to summer camp, there was this great evangelist. Some of you were in my Sunday school class last week, and we actually talked about this. This great evangelist woman named Joyce, and she would, every Friday night, we had this kangaroo court. And some counselor would get in trouble, you know, get hauled off and thrown in the creek or something. I forget how it all went. And at the end of that, she'd give a salvation message. I don't know how she did that back to back, but she did. And at the end of it, she'd say, do you want to avoid hell? And I would say, yes. And she would describe hell. You know, you're on fire. Okay, yes, let's avoid hell. So do you want to trust in Jesus? Absolutely. I got saved, quote unquote, every year. I'd get re-saved. And she'd say, this is really going to change your life. And every year in between those summer camps, I would beat my brother up again. Not just once, but a lot of times. And now he's a SWAT team member. He can take me. But, you know, back then, he, he, he was this guy I could kind of pound on. And I thought, I'm not really a Christian. I'm not really a follower of Jesus. And I got afraid. And I wanted to avoid hell. And who doesn't? And yet I never realized that God is calling us to something more. It's not just heaven he's calling us to, it's eternal life. And eternal life is something very different. In fact, it means quality of life, not just quantity of life. Do you know what I mean by that? It doesn't mean just endless days with him. It actually means a change in our life where we actually experience a new form of life, a new goodness, a new hope. And when I started to realize that I was in high school and I started to walk and understand that God had called us to a life that makes a difference here and now. Eternal life is something that makes a difference right today on Labor Day weekend in East Pennsylvania. It's a massive difference. And Paul in the New Testament writers, Jesus, many others, they write this stuff out and they try to help us understand that what Jesus was calling people to was a reality far beyond the one that we sometimes just kind of limit ourselves to, the the story of heaven and hell. I want to read for you Galatians chapter 5. I'm sorry. I'm going to get in front of myself. Romans chapter 6, and we're going to, if you can switch over, Jim. This is just a a little bit of scripture that Paul writes about this. It says, but now that you have been set free from sin, God isn't just calling us to walk into heaven. He's calling us to be set free from sin. And that means we're moving from this side of the equation, death, darkness, hurt, to life. 
But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit of you, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. That means to be made holy and to be changed. And its end, eternal life. In other words, you're walking through a process. You have decided that you're going to give up on sin and you're going to go towards God. And in all, if all you had to do was give up on sin and go towards God, it's a little bit wondering why you'd give up on sin. Because, I mean, how many of you know sin is actually fun, right? Come on, be honest. Sin is fun. If you do things the way God tells you not to, at least at the start, most of them are things you do because that is something you want to do. And yet this storyline is one where God actually changes what you want. That's what sanctification actually means. It's not just do what God tells you. It's actually that God is transforming us to people to be people who want to be different who expect that life is better when we're different. And ultimately, as we get moving forward into this thing, we're transformed to a place where eternal life, we're actually very different in our lifestyles. And it's all because of a heart change, not because of just a behavior change. When I was a kid, what I learned is a behavior change, the behavior modification. And, and, and that's not powerful. And what Paul and Jesus write over and over again in the New Testament is, I want to set you free. In fact, Paul at one point says, it is for freedom that you have been set free. I want you to be free. I want you to experience everything that I have for you. I want to see you move into this new life with all that it entails and leave behind the old life, not because it's just something bad that you have to do to listen to Jesus, but because this life is so much better. And frankly, at the end of it, it's so much more fun. I wrote up a little chart of words that the New Testament uses to describe this life. On the left-hand column is eternal life, on the right-hand column is death. And every one of our behaviors, either in every one of our words and every one of our heart movements, either goes towards life or it goes towards death. And frankly, we're broken people who live in between these two realities. We, we've chosen death quite often, right? You know you have. I have too. There's all sorts of realities that are, and I know that I would be better. Just think about the smallest things. Let's not think about the big moral decisions we make. Think about eating. I love a Wendy's hamburger. On Tuesday, I had one. For about three hours after a Wendy's hamburger, I feel like, you know, I weigh 100 pounds more than I do. I just get sludgy. You know what I mean? And if I have to do something at all active, I don't want to do anything active. Now, I'm not trying to pick on Wendy's, but you know, and I know, that eating certain things, it actually kind of weighs us down, and we get de-energized. Now, that's not a moral... I'm not telling you you shouldn't have Wendy's. I'll probably have it next week again. But there is this sense in which this stuff leads one way or the other, and eating too much of that stuff actually breaks us to the point where we're choosing other things, and that can really impact our life. You know, I, I find that when I eat right, for instance, I'm a better dad. Because my kids have more energy than me and I can chase them around a whole lot better when I eat better and I'm choosing life when I eat better. Isn't that interesting? That's a really crass example. But but rather than talk about the things that pastors usually pick on, we'll spend some time on that later on, but just pick on the small stuff for a second and think that there is the ability, even in the smallest little segments of our lives, to choose life versus choosing death. And what you're thinking about and what you're pondering in these moments is a really big deal. Choosing light, choosing darkness. We'll talk about that. Choosing spirit, choosing rules, choosing righteousness versus choosing shame. There are two sides to this column, and we're in between these things. And the New Testament writers again and again ask us to choose the left-hand column and to see what God is offering, not what God is beating us over the head to choose. Instead, he's saying, please come, join me. 
So we're going to walk through these words. Before we do, I need to kind of bring you up to speed on some of the things. We're going to read John chapter 3 in a minute. But John begins with some words. He begins his book this way. In the beginning, where else would you look for a passage of Scripture that begins that way? Genesis, right? And John wants us to know that he's restarting the story And instead of about Adam, it's going to be about a second person named Jesus who's going to restart everything. And instead of six days of creation and the sun, moon, and stars and all that stuff, this restart is going to be about redemption. And so his whole book is is kind of focused on showing us this new angle on life. And he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in, 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 in him was life, and that life was the light of man. And he says that this Jesus, this, this word, he had the ability to create life and light. And it changed the, the game for human beings. We're different than every other thing on this planet because we have this light within us that is very different. And what he means by that is spirit. Then it goes on and it says, in him was this light and this life. But then it goes on and, and in the darkness, the light shines and the darkness has not comprehended it. And if you just get that little line, the light has shone in the darkness and the darkness has not comprehended, what you get is a picture of what the book of John is going to be all about. Again and again and again, it's going to put Jesus in situations where he's going to talk to somebody and that person is choosing darkness and he's going to be light. And when he becomes light in that situation and shows them the light, they're going to have a choice. And so right away, right from the very beginning of John, you're going to see story after story after story of people either choosing light or choosing darkness, but they're going to have the opportunity to see light because of Jesus. And we're going to read one of those stories in John chapter 3. Maybe you've read it before. It's kind of a famous story, and it has maybe the most famous verse in the New Testament right in the very middle of it. If you haven't read this verse in its context, it might make a little bit of a difference to hear that. So begin just reading with me. It'll be on the screen behind me. You can turn in your Bibles if you want to, to John chapter 3. But look for little bits of light and look for the darkness because it's going to be a little bit of a surprising darkness. In the story after, it's going to be a whole different form of darkness as Jesus kind of shows himself to be light, eternal life in the midst of this this, this context where people are choosing darkness. It says this, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. What do we know about Pharisees? Anybody know? They liked, they liked rules. You know, God gave 10 rules on which life was kind of built in the Old Testament era, and they turned that into 673 rules. How many of you love rules? My kids, they love to watch whether I'm speeding or not. They just ask me, when, when we get on 422, they, they, they always measure speed by escalation. It's not actually how fast we're going, it's how fast we're increasing speed. And so they think on on-ramps we're always speeding. And they don't realize that you're actually going much faster when you're just driving down the highway. But they're like, are we speeding now, Dad? No, we're going 45 and we need to at least get up to 55 or that truck's going to you know, ram us in the tailpipe as we go down the road. And, and they have this kind of perspective about this thing. Well, there are rules and they have a rule-bound perspective. And many of us live in the darkness of rules. Nicodemus lived in the darkness of rules. And he was a ruler of the Jews, which means he was one of the 71 most prominently placed rulers or religious leaders in the, in the day of Jesus. This man was famous. Everybody knew him. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, he came to him by night. You know, when I go to Giant grocery store, I don't have to go in the dark. I never am ashamed of people seeing me at Giant in the daylight, right? Why did he go to see Jesus at night? He didn't want anybody to know 
what he was doing. And he didn't want anybody to know that there was this ache in his heart and in his soul. There was a longing for something that he found in Jesus, a freedom that was in Jesus that he lacked in himself. And he knew all about the religious system of his day. He knew everything there was to know about God from a Jewish perspective in that time frame. But what he didn't know was what Jesus knew. And he could tell the difference. And yet he didn't want to admit that to all of his friends. And so he came to Jesus by night. And he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He admits he's seen a miracle or two, and Jesus is a game changer. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I read this to my kids this week, just over dinner. Shelby was gone. I just read it to them one-on-one. And it was this amazing moment. And I said, What do you think? And what they said is about what Nicodemus thought. Nicodemus said back to Jesus, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, my mom is five foot one and about, you don't tell her I told you, but she weighs about 115. And my kids were picturing me climbing back inside my mom. And it wasn't working for them. And they said, how can you get inside your mother? You know, they're trying to picture this distended tummy. If this is too graphic for you, forgive me. But Nicodemus said it. And this is what he was picturing. And he's like, Jesus, how can a person do this? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And then he goes to this kind of metaphor. He says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You can understand the dirt underneath your feet. You can understand the walls of this building. You can see roofs and trees and plants. You can understand other human beings and animals. But the wind, you can't see, right? And the lack of scientific knowledge of their day, they kind of drew upon that and said, you don't know much about this wind. You don't know much about where it comes from or where it's going. Well, let me tell you that that's how it is with the Spirit of God. And when he starts to move inside of a human being and they experience this freedom and this eternal life and this righteousness, this whole change, let me tell you that it looks like something that you can't define or describe. You need to be born again. And this time you need to be born of the Spirit because all of these words... The laws that you built, that you decide are important, they're actually keeping you from the darkness, and yet you're ensconcing yourself within another more subtle form of it. You're not actually entering the light, Nicodemus. You're actually living in the darkness yourself. And the Spirit wants to set you free. It goes on a little further. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And Jesus is talking about himself here. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him, and here is the line, may have eternal life, right? What comes next is the most famous verse in the New Testament, but you have to understand this context. He's saying, listen, choose life. And it will be a qualitative difference for your existence. And you don't understand because you're still living in this darkened reality and you're not free because you've decided upon a system that lacks freedom. For most of us, we have a system like this in our lives and we don't know it. We'll talk a little bit more about that sort of system in a moment, but it goes on. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The next story after this one is the story about a woman, and she's at a well, and Jesus comes along and sees her, and he has a conversation with her. And she's in this area of Israel where the Samaritans live, and they were kind of half-Jewish people who were racially segregated and left out in the cold. And no Jew would have to do with the Samaritans. And the Samaritans, in response, didn't have much to do with Jews. And the Jews had actually barred them from their temple. And there was this conversation. This woman had, was a person who walked in the more typical form of darkness. She'd had a bunch of husbands and was living with somebody who was not her husband in this moment. And Jesus came to her and they had a conversation. And what's amazing is, instead of condemning her, he draws her attention to her sin. But then he, he kind of blesses her. And she becomes a missionary who reaches her whole community almost immediately. He offers her this eternal life in such a way, in fact, we'll read it in a little bit. He offers her eternal life in such a way that she has a well pouring up from within her in his own words, and it goes out and it touches her whole community. You know, we easily become condemning people, right? And yet what this passage tells us is that God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. What did Nicodemus exist to do? He existed to make a bunch of rules that kept darkness out and made sure that those people were the condemned folks and he himself lived apart from them and said, any of those people who touch me, any of the relationships that could develop here, they're going to break me. You know, Jesus had a phenomenal ministry to prostitutes. There's no way to read the gospel without reading that. He could walk into one of these situations where there was a woman and he could touch her life because he saw her not as an object of desire, but as a human being. And he profoundly poured value into human lives over and over again, not just prostitutes, but all sorts of versions. Tax collectors, people who cheated their people out of money. Who likes a call from the IRS? Well, imagine if they were actually stealing to line their own profits. And Jesus befriended these people. One of his disciples, Matthew, was one. Jesus was phenomenal at doing this. And he had this ability to not condemn, but to transform. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And now here it is, and this is judgment. Now just think for a second, because you are a judge, right? You judge your own life. If you're someone who has deep regrets, how many of you have regrets? Don't raise your hands, don't tell me. But I have a few myself. You're judging yourself, right? How many of you get stuck in those regrets? You're just stuck back there, and you go, if I wouldn't have chosen that choice, if I would have chosen not to marry that person or to marry that person, or if I would have chosen to take that job or to quit that habit earlier in my life, if I would have chosen to do this, what you're doing is you're playing judge in your life. Others of you have a real self-righteous spirit and you say, well, I sin, but I don't sin like, and then you have somebody on the opposite end of your life and you know they're worse than you. Come on, you do, right? You know, if you're honest, you have somebody out there and you're playing judge. I've done this I, myself. I have a problem with this. I will tell you that my personal gifting is that when we line up the spiritual gifts, my gift says next to it, unforgiveness, struggles with forgiveness. That is Josh Bightwork in a nutshell. There's no problem with that. I can see it. And this is judgment. What Jesus is about to say is going to cut through every bit of judgment that any human being says. It's not going to be a moral judgment. It's not going to say people who are immoral are on the wrong side and people who are moral on the right side. Those things are true and right and good to some extent. But here is what he says. This is judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. In other words, when the light shines and Jesus walks into your life, whether you choose him or not is the deciding factor of which side of the line you're on. It's not about your past. 
It's not about how bad you failed. It's not about the immorality that you've tried to let go of. It's not about the habits that God is calling you to walk away from. It's about will you choose light. And that's not mostly about behavior modification. It's about heart transformation. And the God of the universe wants to alter our lives, not by condemning us, but by pouring eternal life into us, which makes us capable of leaving behind some of those things that tear us down and uproot and hurt and destroy. So Jesus isn't a condemning God. He's actually one who's benevolently trying to change people. This is judgment. The light has come into the world. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The word confession in the New Testament means with agree with God. And all it means to walk in the light is to agree with God about who you are. Some of us have to agree with God that he saved us and we're better than we want to admit. That actually happens, by the way. Some of us just get so down and so regret-filled and so broken that we look at ourselves and we can't believe in us anymore. And God actually believes in us more than we do. And we're stuck in our past in an unforgiveness of our own selves. And God would show up and say, I want to set you free from all of those regrets. Others of us are, are struggling with some sin and we don't want to walk into the light and hear what Jesus has for us because we have some habit we don't want to give up. In the first service, I said this line, and I think I got in trouble with a few people, but there's this famous church father named Augustine. You ever hear of Augustine? Some people call him Augustine. We're 1,600 years removed from him, but he was a tremendous philanderer. That means he slept with a lot of women, and he was a playboy. He was renowned for it. He had a mistress and all of these kids. It was a phenomenal... Anyway, when he started to hear the call of God in his life, he offered a prayer. He said, God, make me chaste. That means to not sleep with anybody, but not yet. That's what he said. That's literally his prayer. God, make me chaste, but not yet. And his conversion comes just after that because he honestly, finally prayed an honest prayer. That was a prayer of confession, right? I don't want to give this up. This is my particular sin, and I like this, and I know if I choose God that he's going to call me to give up that stuff. So let me just be honest with you, God, and tell you I would rather live like this, but someday I want God. Isn't that a great prayer when you think about it? Some of you are going, I can't handle that. It's the prayer that turned him into the best thinker of his era. He became the transformational person who best explains the Trinity in the history of the church. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he does the best job describing that whole doctrine about the Trinity. That is Augustine. But he starts by having to give up this whole lifestyle, and he prays this honest prayer. Some of us need to get honest with Jesus about where we're actually at. We're proud. We're self-righteous. And what I find interesting about Nicodemus is that he lived a life on the right side of every line you can imagine. He followed all 673 rules. He was a person who never broke the Ten Commandments. And Jesus shows up in his life, and he's going to show up in the woman at the well's life next, and he's going to say, both of you have walked in darkness, and I'm calling both of you into the light. It doesn't matter how immoral you've been. Let me pull you into the light, he says to the woman who's got this fairly fantastically broken past. And then he looks at this man, Nicodemus, and he says, all of your rules, they're as bad as all of her immorality. All of that stuff that you're calling the real truth, well, that's actually brokenness and not something that's going to lead to eternal life. You can't see the goodness of what God's doing because you're so self-righteously hiding out from everybody in your little cave. And let me tell you that you are to be born again. And if you walk according to the Spirit, then there will be a new reality in your existence. There will be new hope. There there will be new life. We need this today. At the end of the Freedom Series, when we're talking about what God wants to do, He wants to set us free. It's hard to admit that half of us 
need to get free from some addiction. And the other half of us, and Alston's addictive, by the way, but the other half of us need to be set free from this thing called self-righteous behavior where we think we're right and we're not. There's those few words, and I want to walk through them. The word light shows up again in another passage in Ephesians 1, and I just want to read for you. It says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. So what is this? What are we reading? We're reading a prayer, right? This is going to be Paul's prayer list for the church at Ephesus, which is a huge city in what is present-day Turkey. It says, Remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Have you ever wondered why people don't just understand that Jesus is the light? Why don't we all of a sudden turn all at once to Jesus? Why does he not seem to make sense to us? I remember thinking as a kid, this didn't make sense. And I remember even after deciding that I was going to follow Jesus, having moments when I realized it doesn't make sense to me today. I'm really doubting. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you have honestly doubted like this? Paul lays this out and he says, that's actually kind of normal. Why? Because he's praying for people to have the eyes of their heart enlightened. To see the truth about what Jesus is is all about, we have to have this kind of spiritual reality shift where our hearts are open to what God's actually doing. And if we don't have that moment, then something goes broken within us and we can't actually see. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. This eternal life thing sounds pretty good. There's a hope involved. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? That has to do with the worldwide church. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? He'll go on to compare that and say the resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate example of the power of God and it's available in the life of every believer even now as long as our hearts are open. You know, the reality is that most of us walk lives that are somewhat closed. We're just kind of shadow figures of what God called us to be. At the end of next month, Andy Crouch is going to be here and he's going to be sharing with us what it means to be an image-bearing Christian. Every, every human being is created in the image of God and he's going to talk to us about this. I'm really excited about what Andy has to share with us. But, but at the heart of what that's all about, we have to have eyes in our hearts that are open. That's a metaphor or a picture that says we need a bigger, more blessed reality. There's an abundant hope that God is calling us to. And if we don't have the spiritual... And Paul, Paul understands that it's not about preaching better and it's not about speaking better. It's not about you reading the word. He actually prays for it because he realizes that this is a spiritual reality. And until those things kind of click inside of us, this stuff doesn't make sense anyway. This faith is missing in our existence. It's easy to think it's just about the end of things and what God is calling us to is being changed in the moment. And when he's calling us to be changed, what he's saying is, let your eyes be open. Let me open your eyes. Let me, let me help you see the spiritual reality of what God is doing. We need to move, so I'm going to skip to the next point. More could be said, but this is the Spirit. It says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. When I was a kid, we were told, you better not dance. Any of you grew up in a church that told you that? I love, Carol, you're, you're saying you didn't grow up in that sort of church. Well, you need to leave now because, we, you know, if you're somebody, everybody who's ever gotten up at a wedding and danced needs, well, no, that's not how it is, right? But I was taught that when I was a kid. And I remember being invited to all the dances at our local public school, and no, I couldn't go. I mean, that's the way I grew up. I'm not telling you, this is admitting some things about my family, right? 
Well, Shelby and I were in Michigan for uh, her sister's wedding. Shelby's a twin, and it was her twin sister's wedding, and I was officiating, and it was this whole fabulous party on the beach. It was really great. Some of you might have seen the pictures, and we had a great time. But uh, at the end of it, the DJ got up, you know, and the music started, and it... It was fun music. It really was. In fact, when we were driving home down the the Ohio State Turnpike, I asked my kids what was their favorite part of this whole vacation. They were there for two weeks. And and two out of three of them said, we liked the dance party at the end of the wedding. One of my daughters looked at me and said, are you really going to let us dance? absolutely. This is a wedding. I mean, we need to celebrate. And we actually talked to the kids about some of the words of some of the songs. We kind of worked through some things. Maybe we don't want to get up there for this song. Maybe we will get up there in this song. But I realized that the reality of my churchiness, my religion, had often and has often closed me down to what God would offer. You know, many of us need to avoid some things. Some of us should never drink again in our lives. Just shouldn't should never touch touch alcohol. Because to take one sip is to want more, and then it just keeps going and gets worse, right? Some of us should avoid watching some sorts of movies because it it tempts our heart. Some of us need to not listen to music, and we might like the music, and it might not even be that it's morally wrong, but it actually kind of pulls us in a direction that we find difficult. That can be all sorts of things. Some music makes you angry. Some of it makes you sexually charged. Some of it makes you romantic. Some of it makes it, it can go all over the map. But whatever it is for you, you have to manage your soul and think about that. But those aren't things we should draw moral lines about. And I remember thinking during this wedding, you know, we drew moral lines around something that is turning into this great, beautiful things for my kids. I watched all three of my kids watching Noah. He's seven dances. Really? Wow. You know, um, he was, he was really something to watch. I wish I had a video, but th- th- this is a great reality. There it started to, uh, the, the, my favorite moment of that night was my father-in-law, who I don't think he's ever danced in his life before that night. I mean, that's just his, his reality. And he has Parkinson's disease. He's actually 71 years of age. And I watched him for the first time dancing with his daughters and my wife. That's the first time in their life they can remember having this, you know, kind of moving moment with their dad. And he felt set free enough to realize there's nothing evil about this moment, but yet churches had often told him that. We have to draw lines in the right places. And the Spirit of God helps us do that. You know, most of us don't know how to use the Spirit, so we create rules like an academus. And we, we hide out over here trying to avoid the brokenness that we might go after when God is actually calling us to enter into things and say, be light in the midst of darkness. And when there is darkness that you, that's tempting, okay, pull back and admit you can't handle it. That's fine. Be humble about that. Don't create a moral line. Just say, you know what, I can't do that. It's totally all right to say, I'm never going to participate in this sort of behavior. What's not all right is to enslave everybody else to your perspective and say, you shouldn't do that. No, 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 maybe I shouldn't do that. Maybe there are things I can't handle. Jesus walked into situations that Josh Bitework cannot handle. And he was light in the midst of those, real, those darkness realities. So walking according to the Spirit helps us to see the difference between what God is leading us towards and where the brokenness of our past might be tempting us, and we can see the difference and we can walk in an illuminated reality. The Spirit of God is the difference between doing what we're supposed to do out of duty or doing it because we're following someone, living life with an actual person who cares about us. Jesus sent this person to be with us forever. And the reality of Christianity without the Spirit of God is missing in a huge way. One last category, righteousness. Jesus said to the woman at the well, that's the story I keep talking about in John chapter 4, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water 
welling up to eternal life. Nicodemus and the woman at the well, two stories back to back in John. Both of them kind of commentaries on Jesus' ability to be light in the darkness, even though the darkness does not comprehend it. And what's fascinating is to see him condemn the laws of the Pharisee and yet call that Pharisee to walk in hope and light and and truth. And then he turns to this woman and he says, I would love to build a well of eternal life within you. And what actually happens is she goes and tells her whole town and people become Christians all over the place because of her becoming a missionary because he turned this woman who had this broken past into somebody who could reveal the truth of what Jesus is all about. Wherever you've come from this morning, the truth of eternal life is that you're one step off the path. Okay? You're never more than one step. Isn't that great? That means that if God is calling to you today, all you have to do is say yes to that one step and then one step more and then one step more because you're walking with a person, uh, uh, the Holy Spirit, and you're saying yes to him. It's not that morals don't matter. It's that they're not the, the extreme line. The line is when Jesus speaks, are you listening? And are you willing to step into it? And are you willing to walk into that no matter what it costs? And where that reality is, there is hope. And God is calling us to live out eternal life, not in the far future, but in the reality of today. The existence of God in our lives means that we have to leave behind some of those expectations that are broken. We have to leave some of those habits behind, possibly, that are broken. But they're saying yes to a whole new hope that God has called us to. So how would that change us? We need to walk through just a few more slides. The lie, the the lie that's underneath this form of bondage. Choosing to follow Jesus means losing rather than gaining freedom, as eternal life is only about the future instead of about life today. And the truth that would set us free from that, the desire of God is to bring wholeness of life, flowing in goodness, now and forever. Just a word on one of those verses. John 10 says, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Isn't that a great promise? I've come that your life may be more, not less. I want to make it bigger, not smaller. I want to make it more powerful, not weaker. I want to turn you around. You should be the best dancing church of all churches. Because Jesus rose from the dead. And he's telling us this is how we respond in celebration and thankfulness and in hope. And we tend to tie ourselves down and say we have to live life in a corner. The desire of God is to bring wholeness of life, not to limit you into some box that is some shell of what you you thought you were supposed to be. So how would this change us? I would trust God as having a kind plan for our lives. I would be motivated to share what God is doing in my life with others. I would live with a sense of urgency as though eternity was in every decision I make and every word I speak. Because it is, right? Because every word is an eternal word. Every behavior, every choice I make, everything is eternal. There's nothing that doesn't have eternal significance. Everything is leading this way or that way. And it's based on our trust in Jesus where we eternally end up. But let me tell you that everything we do has the power to either go this way or that way. If you've never made this choice this morning, let me tell you, I would love to see you make this choice today. We would love to see you come speak with one of us. You can speak with Josh or myself or Harry Yeager or Jay Deering. Others of us in this congregation would love to talk to you about this. If you've made this choice and you're living in a shell of what Christianity is all about and you need to get more free, see us anyway. We'd love to pray for you to say, okay, what are the behaviors you actually do need to say no to versus the things that maybe you need to say, oh, you know what, this isn't so bad. I'm called to this and eternal life can let me be free in the spirit of God. One last word. When you're looking across this congregation or any other room full of people, it's going to be tempting to go, look at that person. They're breaking a rule I live by. 
And it's not going to be one of those moral rules. We're not talking about one of the Ten Commandments. You go, oh, they, they do this. They listen to that sort of music. Oh, I see something in their hand. What, what's in that cup, you know, at a party? What, when you judge them, think seriously. Think seriously about whether you're judging based on eternal life and light that shines in the darkness or whether you're basing what you're deciding upon your own personal weaknesses and limitations. It's okay to limit yourself and say, I can't go there. That's fine. Don't limit everybody else with that truth, okay? I'm going to pray, and then the praise team will come and lead the last song. God, we would pray for your reality in our lives. This is more of a sermon that can be preached in one Sunday. The, the, the idea of eternal life is bigger than one sermon. And yet, God, what we know is that we need to see you in our lives. And I would pray that over these, this church. I pray that eyes of our heart would be enlightened so that we could know the richness of your love and how the inheritance of the saints is worshiping worldwide and the power of what you've called us to is far, far superior to the lives that we usually lead. We mostly think that we are slaves to sin when you're calling us to be slaves to a new reality, a new hope, a new glorious wealth of, of just your spirit moving in our lives. And so, God, we would pray that our hearts would be absolutely inflamed with desire. And if we're leaving some stuff behind, may it be because you've called us to. And if we're picking up some stuff today, may it be because you've called us to. And may we not make rules where rules should not be. And may we decide that every step is going to be living within light of what you're going to call us to at the end of time. When eternal life is going to be all there is instead of this broken reality we live halfway in right now. God, thank you for the fact that even though we're kind of part darkness and part light, part light in ourselves, you have called us to be light and you're calling us to be transformed. And I pray that you would gloriously set this church free. Help us to be people who walk in the wholeness of what your spirit has for us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.